I always loved the Longines book. I remember renting legendary Longines watches through my interlibrary loan program because I was like, I can't spend $400 on a book, let alone a book on Longines. You know, you think back in the day, you're like, is Longines the $400 worthy of, of spending on a, on a book? And then after a few years, you're like, hell yeah, of course it's worth it. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. Today's guest is Charlie Dunn, someone we all got to know under the moniker Books on Time. Passionate about watches, Charlie's that type of collector who took his affection a step further by not only collecting books, but mainly collecting research on the brands and watches that he loves the most. Needless to say, the word got out pretty darn quick about books on time, and Charlie began writing a lot more in-depth content for other friends' mediums, like Rescapement. Eventually, our good friend Eric Wynn snatched him up to come join the team, and that's where we're at today. Charlie is writing some serious content over at Win Vintage, and doing a lot more work behind the scenes as well. Him and I recently got a chance to catch up in New York, and today we're continuing our conversation over the mics. So without further ado, my friend Charlie Dunn for Collector's Gym Radio. Charlie, it's been a long time coming, but thank you for joining me on Collector's Gym Radio today. Thank you so much for having me, Cameron. What's a Wednesday like over there at Wind Vintage? Man, uh, today is a little bit slower, uh, so I'm excited about that. It is... Uh, comprised mostly as far of editing the uh, podcast. We've been off on a hiatus for about maybe a month or so. And so just editing the podcast, I got to uh, chill and work from home this morning. But um, in about an hour or two, I'll be knee-deep in packages and getting watches out and probably uh, going through more listings and email correspondence. So I've, uh, I've relaxed enough until until this hour. So we'll see how we'll see how busy I am in a little bit. <laughs> see how many emails come through. Yeah. Love it. So what's your Wednesday like? Yeah, so Wednesday for me is somehow always just a, a super swamp day of everything. It's actually one of many anniversaries for my wife and I today. So we'll do some stuff later tonight and go out to dinner and do that that sort of thing when uh when work winds down a little bit in the evening. But every day's usually pretty busy over here and I know the podcast over here has also been a little bit on on the back end for the last month as as things got a little busy, but uh, trying to bring it back. So it looks like we're on the same page. No, I think it's uh, it's worth it. The people need to wait for greatness over on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah, make make them wait. <laughs> so before Win Vintage, you and I connected over at your previous page, which was Books on Time, which seems like ages ago. Tell me about what you were doing before Books on Time and what led you to start that? You know, what got you so interested in published content about time? Yeah, so um, a few years ago, I was living in St. Augustine and I was working in um, digital marketing, primarily working with uh, nonprofits and working through Google Analytics and Google Ads and everything in between, kind of all the Google products for digital marketing for clients. And um, my passion, obviously, was vintage watches. But um, in St. Augustine, there's not really a huge vintage watch scene, if you will. So, you know, a little bit uh, relegated to waiting till those opportunities come where you get to see great vintage watches. And I would kind of hike down towards uh, Palm Beach area and link up with Eric every now and then and see watches. But, um, you know, it was much more easy to, and probably less expensive also than collecting vintage watches was finding great books and, um, you know, published material, primary source material on vintage watches, everything from advertisements to, you know, books that were published in the 80s, 90s, things that were just recently published. So that was kind of where my uh, main focus of collecting was. And now I've found myself with a little bit too many books, but at the same time, I know you're a lover of watch books. So I think you can relate that it was uh, not bad, uh, bad uh, money spent or time misspent. <laughs> no doubt. I feel like the path you took was a bit unconventional, meaning most watch books are written 
by collectors based on the items that they collect, right? But you were collecting the books and then writing about, writing further rather about the knowledge and information that you found inside of them and, and doing, you know, a little bit deeper research and then sharing that with people like me. Not to say that you weren't interested in watches or weren't collecting them, but would you say that's pretty accurate? Yeah. I mean, I think that like all of the the treasure hunting for vintage watches, there's the same type of excitement about books and finding great ads. I mean, it's just, it's one of those things. It's not all of the information that is, you know, published on the internet, on blogs and articles is necessarily the end all in terms of information. There's a lot of people from both our generation and older collectors that missed opportunities to look for primary source material or published works that took, you know, a little bit more effort and a little bit more uh, rigor in terms of writing the books back in the day. So, I mean, you know, the books are exciting. And, and on, on top of that, you know, it's one of those things is like, I like ephemera. I like boxes. I like, you know, publications, all of this stuff is just as exciting to me if I can find like a buckle for a watch. So the books are also one of those things is like, if you go back to those early days of Hodinkee articles, you'll see that the same kind of mindset was on these people who were writing articles in 2012, 13, they're taking photos of their watches on top of a photo, you know, within a book, you know, kind of getting the little setting right for their photo opportunity. And these kind of like these little types of, you know, behaviors are very similar as they were 10 years ago. And probably before that people just love all of this stuff that surrounds the watches. Yeah, no doubt. What books did you start out collecting and where has the collection evolved today? You know, what are you hunting now? Because these can range from, you could find some of these books on, on eBay and, and other websites and auction houses for really cheap, or they can get really, really darn expensive. Yeah, I mean, all of the books, like, for instance, the first books that I would come across, you know, antique shopping with my dad, he was really big into um, antique chairs. And so he would drag me along. And I have books from way back that were the Schiffer publication books. They were kind of these, you know, 1990s, early 2000s publications of of collecting watches. So everything from like 20th century wristwatches, you know, those publications are phenomenal ones. And I still even kind of comb through those pages after owning the books for several years. But the um, stuff that I was really excited by, I think were kind of like the more kind of collector focused books. I always loved the Longines book. I remember renting legendary Longines watches through my interlibrary loan program because I was like, I can't spend $400 on a book, (laughs) let alone a book on Longines. You know, you think back in the day, you're like, is Longines the $400 worthy of, of spending on a, on a book? And then after a few years, you're like, hell yeah, of course it's yeah, worth it. Need, you're like, I need three of them. I know I need, I actually have two copies of them behind <laughs> me. I got the uh, advanced copy and then I've got one in German, I think too. But you know, those, um, those types of formats, I think that like, you know, the, the, you know, Moonwatch only books, the Longines books, the, you know, Goldberger's, Rolex books. I like those types of formats where you can see the components of a watch and it gives you kind of a little bit of a forensic look at what the watch is. But at the same time, I think that it's kind of important to have a very big visual component to a book because that's what makes these things actually big and beautiful, like things that you want to open up. It's It's got to have good visual component to it. So um, even the coffee table books that are kind of more so for just admiring rather than intensive research are, are great. I like I like a little bit of uh, scholarly work, though, the stuff that you can open up every now and then and find something new. And learn a little bit too. And, and you know, you know, maybe go back to, it's kind of, it is very similar to a watch in a lot of ways or, or even a film where you can watch it multiple times and each time you pick up on something different or a nuance that maybe you skipped over. Um, 100%, yeah. As you mentioned, and as you know, I, I collect books as well, watch books being one of the many categories that I collect in. And, you know, we definitely share some love for some very specifics, like the John Goldberger books that you mentioned. And uh, you, you and I have probably bid against each other on one of those probably one time or another. But do you have a favorite from his collection? I think Longines is, is my favorite book. Um, and the uh, expanded copy where it's, you know, a big tome with a leather bound cover. 
I do love the um, I do love the Rolex book also the Moon the the Omega books also. You know, Time to Race was cool and all that. I'm not really a huge automotive or racing kind of guy, but I can appreciate that type of like genre as well. But I'm I'm curious to hear what your favorite one is. I think I know what it is. Um, Steel Paddock is what I would imagine. <laughs> that one is is maybe number two. My favorite one is is less of a informational book. It's it's the book he did with Alessandro Scorzi. Yes. The Time to Wear book on on his collection. And I just I, I love the relationship between the two of them and how different both of their collections are, but share so many similarities in a lot of way. And so it's kind of like a a collab book, if you will. And I don't know why. That that one's just fun to to look through. It's it's less of a, a learning experience. No, I think you're right. I mean, also some of these books are great, like not only from just a, you know, you open them up and, and enjoy, you know, Sunday afternoon with them, but like, it's cool to have something, you know, beautiful on the wall. It's like a, you know, collection of a, a clock or anything like similar. It's just, it's beautiful to have a nice book. And those books are quite cool. You know, you open them up and spend time or you lend them to a friend. I mean, they're important objects, like just like watches are, but I, um, I don't have that copy. So I'm going to probably try and get a uh, interlibrary loan program with you and I'll, I'll find something that's worthy of trading for two weeks to exchange with you, Cameron. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's a couple watches I'd like to, as Eric would say, have a sleepover with. So You're more than welcome to them. <laughs> <laughs> Another one that we love is Dr. Kratz, um, The Dial, or if anybody's like me and had no patience, I bought the French version. So Le Cadran. So that's another book that we both absolutely love that is super informational and super special. Yeah, 100%. I remember when um, the English copy got released after about two or three years of both of us probably emailing him and saying, there's a market for the English copies. Please let us know when it's ready. Um, <laughs> and he, he was actually quite you know responsive because um, you know he had emailed me back in the same email thread years after the fact and said, hey, it's coming. Um, keep an eye out on Hodinkee and of and elsewhere. Uh, that book is sweet. You know, I think that there's those genres of of publications where you focus on a brand, or in this in this instance, you focus on the actual component of the watch, the dial, and you know the story of the Stearns. It's it's a fantastic story, and all the different tile genres of how they evolved over the years, from pockets to wristwatches, and you know the techniques that kind of came and 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 went, and then sometimes in some instances came back and were revived. It's a, it's a beautiful story and dial making case making movement making. It's all, it's all kind of very romantic process. And so, you know, you see people who have uh, affinity for things that are in house or what have you. And then you have people who say, I don't care what the movement is as long as the dial maker is a stern or if it's a singer, you know, these are the things that people get obsessed with. And, um, you know, we all have our own kind of areas of focus and, you know, the dial is kind of one of those those genres of watchmaking that's just so beautiful. And to have a book that's dedicated to it, I think that's a, it's, it's very uh, much a classic. So it's definitely a must have. Definitely. Yeah. I was, I remember emailing him and uh, like you said, he was super responsive and I just, I had zero patience. He's like, the, I'm sure the English version is coming. I just don't know exactly when I can't give you a timeline. I was like, screw it. I will be <laughs> yeah. happy with the French version. And Google Translate, the app on your phone actually works pretty easy for you. You can just open it up and look through your phone. On the yeah, page. yeah, for sure. And I, I, I also thought, because I actually buy a lot of these books in different languages, I'm like, well, a lot of these auction houses that I follow and a lot of these you know, live auctions that I follow, they're talking in different languages. It would actually be cool to learn about some of these terms and be able to recognize them in different languages for the, that purpose. So like the Goldberger Rolex book, I bought the German version. Uh, the dial book, I bought the French version and, you know, I'm sure I have a few other nuances like that in the collection. Yeah. And, and you probably, you probably saved about $600 on the German version for the Goldberger book. So at those at least, <laughs> at least I think I paid like, you know, a hundred or 150 bucks for it. I've seen the English versions going for like 800, 900, a thousand. And I was like, I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you say that about the, um, the languages right now I've got a, um, I've got an interest in learning Spanish and um, it kind of has stemmed from working with a, a local watchmaker by the name of Jose, who his English is not, you know, incredible, but it's much better than my Spanish. And so now I've kind of taken to um, 
you know, trying to learn Spanish and make all of these requests. My Spanish is not particularly great, but I can ask a few different uh, requests on watches, um, which I think he gets a, a little bit of a chuckle out of sometimes because he has to repeat the uh, words and how to, uh, <laughs> to pronounce them and actual what the order of the words is. But it's a, you know, it's fun. It's like, that's part of the enjoyment of it as well. You get a, you know, appreciation for the, you know, culture of other people from the watchmaking. It's not just all about Switzerland. You can have people that are German speaking. You can have people that, you know, don't have any real connection to you at all, but you have this interest over watches and you figure a way out how to communicate to each other. And um, we do that all too often with, you know, Instagram and email when it comes to you know our passion. So no doubt. So taking a step back a bit, Books on Time starts to grow and you start to get some traction. You're being interviewed by a lot of people. You're being asked to write for other folks like uh, our good friend Tony at Rescapement. Were your wheels kind of starting to spin on where you could really take the platform? I mean, it gained traction pr- pretty quickly. Your timing was was pretty on point. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was it was a situation where like the books, it, it was kind of like limited. It's like, what a, what is my next step? Am I going to produce a book or am I going to write my own, you know, blog or all that stuff, but then you kind of are limited to the fact that you're only writing about someone else's intellectual property. So I think that there was a desire for people to have conversations about these things. And I hope there still is, you know, it's, it's, it's a great thing to have people who collect focus specifically on finding catalogs, who find advertisements, who can find you, you know, whatever it is, buckles, boxes, these things that we all are, you know, obsessed with. But at the quite soon on, I would I realized that I needed to be accessing more vintage watches because that's what it came down to is you know being able to see these things in person. There's only so much you can kind of learn about limited to you know your screen to your books. You, you kind of if you want to be an expert on on watches, you have to be spending a lot of time handling watches and money was not necessarily growing on trees uh, at my last job, at least in terms of the uh, the type of taste that I had for watches. I wasn't going to be getting any Audemars Piguet's or, uh, you know, Patek Philippe's or Rolex's uh, just working in St. Augustine. But the, um, the more sensible thing that I, you know, found in terms of access was, you know, hitting up Eric and keep on asking him, hey, when's a good time that I can come down? I want to see some watches, you know, I'll try not to get in the way. So, that was where I really kind of started to begin to feel anxious to get more hands on with, with watches. And, you know, I love the writing and all of that stuff, but again, it's like, you don't necessarily know all the context of what you're writing about without having the ability of, of talking with people without being able to hold stuff. That's, it's kind of a critical thing to learn. You have to be able to write, talk experience, you know, it's um, something that I've, I've come to appreciate a lot more is the actual conversations surrounding watches because the people that I typically admire in um, in terms of like, you know, experts and thought leaders on vintage watches, they have spent a good amount of time doing the, the rounds of every single format, whether it is writing, whether it is video, all of this stuff is kind of I- integral for for somebody who can call themselves, you know, an expert or somebody who's influential in watches. Sure. And then somewhere down the road, our good friend and your colleague, Eric Wynn, snags you to come join his team. Since then, you've gotten back into writing, which is great. You've written some amazing in-depth articles for winvintage.com, like the 10 best vintage Rolexes uh, to collect, the collector's guide to the Rolex GMT Master 1675, what about vintage Rolex is, is so exciting to you to not only collect, but to do so much, so much research on? Because at this point, I feel as if you, you collect the knowledge on this stuff more so than you enjoy collecting the watches themselves. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, you know, Eric, Eric was the person who really turned me on to why Rolex is so awesome. And um, the earliest years, I was obsessed with everything from JLC to jeans, but Rolex is just such an awesome product. And not to say that other manufacturers don't make incredible timepieces. I mean, it's like, that'd be crazy talk to say that. But in terms of just a sturdy, really reliable watch, it's just amazing to see someone work on these timepieces and make them, you know, chronometer certified. They can regulate these things and, and to various positions. They're all running within 
um, good specs, waterproofing these things. Obviously, you know, in regards to watches like the GMT, the characteristics of these watches are, you know, breathtaking. You see them in all different flavors, you know, the condition of, you know, certain dials, how they held up or the bezel colors, the way they fade in certain years, the way that they, you know, gracefully age over the course of years, even with wear. It's like a Rolex is this this awesome, rugged timepiece that even though like by today's standards, people see as this, you know, it's a luxury. These things are just so incredibly well-made and I love the, I love the product behind it. Um, so collecting, like you said earlier, like it's, it's the collecting of the knowledge more so than the watches. My bank account is not as, as, uh, is not as deep as, as what my uh, aspirations are and all the vintage watches that I'd love to <laughs> own. But, you know, in terms of actually holding these things, like, it's like if you were to tell me a few years ago, it's like, oh, wow, you'd get to be able to handle certain watches every single day. You have to remind yourself of how great that is. I mean, I love, I love my job. I get to see some of the most incredible watches every day. And even spending like five minutes, if it just comes in and I know that it's going to a client immediately, that five minutes of being able to like hang out with the watch, if it's a, just a truly expe- exceptional thing, that's great enough. You know, it's a, it's honestly, it's a very special thing. Are there any brands or specific watches that before working at Win Vintage you really, really loved? And then, you know, this happens often. You get jaded from seeing and 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 holding on to and and researching and being able to wear even if it's for five minutes or look at even if it's for five minutes. Is there anything that you, you really loved in the beginning that you're kind of like, ah, oh, you know, I still like it, but I'm happy I don't own it? It's interesting. Like, I think, yeah. It's jaded. Um, I think a lot of the modern stuff I'm kind of jaded on. There are certain modern watches that I look at and have a lot of respect for. Um, the Tudor Black Bay line I think is incredible. It's like I'm, I wore a Black Bay yesterday. I love that watch. I left it in you know the bank for about a month and then just recently kind of was speaking with somebody who was doing a, uh, doing a conversation with me on um, Tudors and I was like, oh, shoot, I need to get that watch out. So I was excited to wear it again. Um, but, you know, most modern watches for me are not really as um, enthralling. And I think perhaps, you know, it's a little bit because that characteristic that we were talking about a second ago is is kind of what draws me in. I like the very s- specific looks that one watch can take on over a course of decades of wear. Or, you know, it's, I think so, Nautiluses and Audemars Piguets perhaps a few years ago would have been something that I would have been like, oh, that's sick. Let me see that. Now it's kind of like, eh, well, it's not really for me. But I can appreciate the fact that these are, you know, iconic in the sense of watch collectors appreciate them. People who are very fashionable focused people, they love the the streetwear. They love like high-end clothing. They like the style element of it. I like the fact that it's there, but for me, like the commercial kind of appeal of stuff is not as exciting. So that genre is a little bit, you know, it's not like something that I'm romantic about, but there's a lot of watches that I had a, an affinity for before I started working at Wind Vintage that I still am, you know, even more nuts about to this day. Any specifics? Oh, wow. JLC memo boxes. I'm actually looking at a memo box that's ending today on a bid. I don't want to tell where it is, but I'm bidding on it. And um, is there still hope? There is hope. Um, there's always hope. And if I win it, then I'll probably be as ecstatic as I was, you know, getting my first watch or it's those things, you know, those things are really, I'm, I'm just nuts about them. I find them so interesting and, um, I've owned a a lot of them, but still to this day, I'm like, I'm just as excited about when one comes in that's, you know, not the most, you know, um, the most expensive one or, if it's, you know, a 35 millimeter or a 34 millimeter watch, it's still as exciting as a 37 millimeter one. It's like those watches are just very sentimental to me. And um, I'm excited when I get to be able to offer them to someone who feels, you know, the same uh, the same romanticism about a Memovox that I do. So I'm like, yes, this is going to a great home. <laughs> J- JLC is a brand that you're, you're known for being extremely fond of and I'm curious to know what it is about the brand that you love so much and 
maybe if there's any books from them that you're pretty fond of. Yeah, LaCultra is just a, a really remarkable manufacturer. I think all of the value manufacturers are important, you know, to the story of watchmaking. Um, you know, people have um, their holy trinities, and I don't necessarily like think, oh, okay, this is the holy trinity of watchmaking. These people are wrong for thinking that, but you know, there's there's a great story when it comes to LaCultra, and they. Um, very much behind the scenes for a lot of the uh, very important and then monumental releases for everyone's um, company. It's like LaCultra is an ingenious watchmaker and the story of that brand is just as much about clocks as wristwatches. So, you know, if you happen to have an interest in clocks, you know, you could be a nutcase about, you know, clocks and not care about uh, wristwatches as at all, but LaCultra is still as important as, as the other side of the um, collector's perspective. So, I mean, you know, JLC is, is just a remarkable company. I think, you know, it's, it's one of those areas that I still think that it's not as um, mainstream in terms of the vintage catalog hasn't really taken uh, a huge jump in prices over the course of the years when I started getting into them. So that makes me happy in terms of hunting for certain things. I like to, be able to hold them and, and hopefully keep them for a little bit of time. So that's exciting. But at the same time, it's like, you know, watchmaking pedigree is the way that they describe it. They are very solid. Um, and there's also, there's also a lot of, you know, great books about them. The most recent one is the collectibles, which, you know, is more so the collector guide. It's, it's got a range of watches that probably deserved a little bit more in depth scholarship on. And I was very pleased when they released the book and, um, I still am opening it up on my days off and checking it out and trying to take photos of my uh, Memovox and align it with the background page. But I need to get you a copy because I think you'd dig it. It'll probably make you uh, nuts for, I'd say, futurematic. I think you're a futurematic type of guy. You think so? Okay. I would imagine. I thought I was maybe a reverso guy too. but you know, You're definitely a reverso guy. But if we're going to be a little bit more flamboyant, we'd, we'd look for a, uh, for a futurematic for you. Love that. Are there any books out there that you wish existed, but, but don't to your knowledge or any topics rather? Yeah. I think a book on case makers would be excellent. You know, I would also like to see more books on uh, vintage Rolex. I think that would be pretty good. Like there's tons of books on vintage Rolex, but you know, more, you know, more kind of expanded, like collectors kind of resources would be epic. A lot of the stuff that's been published back in the day was, you know, outdated or hearsay and stuff like that. So a nice, really big comprehensive book on um, collecting vintage Rolexes or a focused book on GMTs or Daytonas or just a reference point in general kind of styled book would be epic. I think, um, but case makers would probably be the one where I would imagine the biggest potential is because right now, at least it seems as though more so than ever, people are focused on design and the case construction of certain watches. And, um, you know, it's a huge opportunity. What book would you like to see written? I'm curious. I'm curious on that one. I think a book on like all double signed watches would be really interesting. That would be sick. All the different retailers and brands and all that stuff. I mean, there's so much unknown about. And we could only make, you know, the the small inferences that we can on like a Cartier signed Daytona, yeah. you know, um, we can obviously just make the inference that, you know, they had a partnership together at some point or were able to sell watches in, in the boutique at some point. But there's, there's so much more to that because there's so few of them that I find would be so interesting. Even the, just the longstanding relationship with Patek and Tiffany is really interesting, but there's so many defunct retailers that have had their names put on dials that I just find super interesting. And even the collaboration watches, like I talk about this all the time and people are probably sick of it, but I love a lot of the Ralph Lauren watches because they have P the manual calibers are Piaget calibers. Yep, yeah, and yeah. I love the idea. I love the idea of that partnership. Yeah. They had a lot of um, JLCs and Piagets. And if you look at the cases on some of those, you can kind of identify what they are in terms of the, the caliber, but some of those cases are pretty cool in terms of the engine turning and like, you know, there's a lot of detail in some of those watches. There's, um, there's two small little, like kind of a uh, faux leather alligator leather or 
kind of like black, uh, glossy books. I've got to find them somewhere, but I don't know if you have them, but they're kind of like, um, I would say they're kind of like uh, those retailer like books that they probably would have had behind the shelf uh, for people who are trying to sell the Ralph Lauren watches because I can't imagine that there was like a specialized like salesperson for the Ralph Lauren watches. They just probably threw them in there like hopefully these will sell. But I've got um, I've got two little books I'll have to try and find and and dig up and, and send you because at least you'll appreciate them. <laughs> yeah, I, I I love that stuff and and I just you know anyway I think that that kind of book would be really interesting too. And I'm sure at some point someone will work on some sort of article or book on that stuff, but there's so little information about some of that stuff that it might be too difficult, you know, unless you're super knowledgeable on some of those partnerships and and retailers. It would be cool to see like a comprehensive look at um, South American retailers for Patek Philippe and the watches that were sold in South America that would be yeah, cool. like Serpico with Lino. Yeah, right? it'd be cool to see all that. Like even stuff like a Rolex in Cuba or something like that. All of the cool double signed watches, or you know, it's it's an interesting genre. There's you know, there's there's interest in that. I mean, for me, I'm not really a huge on. I want a second signature or more text on my dial, but at the same time, people love the romanticism around that stuff. It's like that's like yeah, what makes the watch for them. It is a cherry on top if you know, everything else adds up and, and the pricing makes sense and, you know, all the stars align. It is just that little extra, you know, it's that last bite sort of thing that I think puts people over the edge and yeah, super interesting stuff. Charlie, any plans going forward at Wind Vintage for more collector's articles or anything exciting that you and Eric are working on that, that you can share maybe a little snippet of or any exciting partnerships that you guys have coming up soon? Yeah, um, for partnerships, I'll leave that one to Eric to uh, be the one to announce. But I actually have um, I have an article I wanted to work with him on, which was uh, he kind of addressed it on his HSNY part two, but um, 10 watches that I'd love to own. So I think I'll try and uh, have him narrate that one to me and in, uh, in kind of going on that announcement. And I'm saying that people expect it once this interview drops. So I'll have to sit him down and tell him to just start talking about 10 different watches. But I think he's got a list that we kind of comprised for his uh, HSNY article. There's a, there's a lot of articles that I'd like to write. I mean, I think that kind of a um, article on why the caliber 990 from Pet Tech would be a special one. These are watches that primarily are to no shaped or kind of, you know, fanciful cases. And when it gets a little bit later into the fifties, you know, that, that caliber was produced, I think in 1932 and, um, was in, was in their catalog for, I want to say 20, 30 years, might've been 30 years. Um, but they, there's a really cool, you know, manual, uh, to no shaped movement that was basically kind of emerging as the, um, Stearns took over Patek Philippe. And, um, I think that would be a really interesting article. You know, the watches themselves are fairly affordable because, most of them are going to be rectangular and smaller shapes, but that would be something that I'd be excited to write on. Um, maybe even something like, you know, um, an article on, uh, you know, the listicles or, you know, the 10, 10 watches, 10 Rolex watches you have to collect kind of thing is like, it's, it's good for SEO for whatever reason, people get excited about like a listicle title. Um, that's one thing that Tony Trainer kind of uh, gave me advice on. He says, make an article. If you want people to read it, make it a list in the title. And so I was like, all right, fine. I'll give that a shot. And um, <laughs> ironically, my, my boss at my old job back in St. Augustine sent me a screenshot and texted me and he saw it on Google discover and he clicked the link and he said, Oh shoot, Charlie's article is being shown to me. I thought that <laughs> That's was hilarious. Yeah. It was pretty fun. But I don't know. I mean, what articles would you like to see? That's a, that's an important uh, question I should ask. You know, I feel like you guys get so many interesting watches and interesting stories that that come through the site and through the, you know, the shop there. And I think it would just be interesting of like, you always, you know, have your what's selling here sort of thing. But I think it would be interesting to kind of take a culmination of all the watches that you guys have listed almost at the end of each year and create a collection for, for the general public based on maybe 10 watches that you guys sold or, or even five watches that you guys sold within the last year that are just 
really special, really collector grade. Some not, maybe some more just like entry level pieces that that just really make sense that flew off the shelf because they were objectively special. I think that that would be interesting because I think there's so much that you guys get that sometimes people don't even get a chance to see it and not only see it, but like sometimes they're just not even looking at that specific thing when it gets to your guy's site. I think that would be a really interesting article. I think, um, obviously people, you guys work with a ton of celebrities who are not always interested in sharing some of their collection, but I think that that stuff always resonates for whatever reason with a lot of people. And I think more, I think an article showing your collection versus Eric's collection and kind of doing like a little head to head thing on that would be really cool too. All right. I like all three of those ideas. I'm going to probably steal uh, one or two of those as my own idea and give you credit to Eric on the, uh, the first or the second. And, uh, hopefully I'll be, uh, you don't have to give me credit. I'll just have a little smile from my laptop. No, it'll be fun. I think that would be cool. Also like a collector kind of, um, you know, focused article on, on people, even if they're, you know, not necessarily high profile, but people who are, you know, low key that just have a, a, a very cool kind of genre of watches they collect, or if they collect very heavy hitter places. Yeah. There's a lot of like diverse collectors out there that, that have some really interesting things or, you know, it, it, on, on the same topic of that, taking five different collectors and choosing one or two watches from each of their collections and creating a collection based on that would be interesting too. I think that's a great idea. I mean, and now it's kind of the best time to do that too, because there's so many people that are in the game that have incredibly cool or unique watches. And it's not necessarily a matter of having like, you know, a ton of money in order to get something. I mean, collectors really love something that's just interesting or exceptional or different. I mean, you see how many people people get excited about design-focused watches nowadays as opposed to four years ago when it was all about, you know, uh, vintage Rolex subs. Five years ago when it was vintage Rolex subs, now people like stuff that's, you know, you couldn't convince them to buy or you couldn't give them that watch five years ago. So it would be a cool, cool concept. I'm sure Eric gets a lot of requests to bring bring a loop back too. Yeah, we you know his um, original column was called "What's Selling Here," and then they changed it uh, to "What's um, to Bring a Loop." So when we when we uh, when we started saying um, to each other, "We're gonna get the email campaign out every single week," and um, at first Eric was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we'll do that," and so then I just had to harass him and be like, "It's ready, let's send it." Um, we we came up with the. Uh, the concept of what's selling here, which uh, was titled by Christine, Eric's wife, uh, which was a brilliant idea and uh, people love it. So it's uh, one of those deep cuts. If you know, you, you uh, understand why the title is special, but uh, if you go back in, I guess the uh, way back machine, you can maybe find a what's selling where uh, article or two. Yeah, for sure. I think if, if once in a blue moon, you guys just found something interesting online that obviously you're not buying for yourselves or for the shop and you're for the website and you just kind of put it out to the public of like, Hey, we think this is interesting. Take a look. You know, that was kind of the best part of, of the what's selling here at bring a loop sort of column was it was just watches that people never search for maybe or maybe they did. And you guys or Eric rather found a really nice example or an interesting example of it for fair, you know, price usually. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, most definitely. All right. I chose three watches that I found find are really interesting from the Win Vintage site. And so I thought maybe I could list them and you just tell me everything you know about them and why they're why they're special and why they made it to your site. Sure, most definitely. The first one I chose as something that I've never seen in person, but I'm in love with the design. I'm in love with the dial. It's the Now Yahida Type 1D. And there's been a few different iterations of this watch, but virtually most of them are the same with minor difference in details. But I, I absolutely love this watch. Yeah, it's super cool. Um, you know, independents are kind of getting their moment in the last few years, which is special. This watch, from what I at least... Um, my understanding of the design is is kind of inspired by those early 96s with the um, offset subsidiary seconds. And some of them would have been signed, like the E. Bernard or, you know, these these watches, even like the JB Champion um, one, which was later the chronometer one, made especially for JB. But um, it's a really interesting design, which obviously kind of plays on the classic Calatrava, but 
I love the watch. It's um, it's heft up in terms of size for the modern person. I think that's a smart move from the brand doing it at 37 millimeters. But um, really the special part about these watches from, from my perspective is the, uh, is the hands. I think the hands are really sophisticated. They have a great blue. Those little tiny details for me are what, what uh, stands out about it. And then on top of that, you know, people really are drawn to the dials, the hand engraving on the signatures and, and breguets. It's like, it's a great watch. Um, you know, as far as would I love to own it for me, I'm kind of more, you know, personally fond of the vintage stuff, but I can see why someone who's as classic as you and, uh, with great taste is choosing that one out of the three. How does it wear? Because, you know, that's obviously not a watch that everybody gets to get their hands on. And I absolutely have not got my hands on one. And, you know, you see 37 millimeters, you think, wow, great size, but it kind of matters also about the lug to lug, which is I think around 44 or 46, if I'm not mistaken. It wears good. I mean, it's like, it's kind of a little bit robust in terms of size to give it, you know, some feel to it, which is smart. It wouldn't be a great watch if it was 33 millimeters. I, I mean, at least, you know, it would be a great watch. I can't say that, but it wouldn't be something that people are so fond about, you know, cause this is something that people kind of ask for in terms of they want something classic or a little bit more heritage inspired from brands like the Pateks, like the APs. It wears really well in the size because the lug, like the actual broadness of the lugs is great. And then on top of that, like, you know, dimensions of the numerals of the sub seconds, it's a pretty nice substantial watch on the wrist without necessarily being, you know, you know, a, a boat on your, on your arm. Right. Love it. All right. You have a JJ Lacoute 18 karat gold memo box. Uh, it's a reference E853. It is unpolished and with an extract. And, you know, you see these uh, memo boxes in steel, you see them in gold, and, and you really can't go wrong with either one. So tell me about this guy. This watch speaks to my heart. I love this thing. Um, it's funny. I, I, know, I, know about, I knew about this watch before I even worked um, at Wind Vintage. Um, it was owned by another uh, collector and dealer. And so I had already been on this thing. I thought it was the best. And uh, one day I came into the office and Eric said, I got a sick watch coming. And I opened up the package and saw this thing. And I was just like, yes, this has just made my day. Um, it's a cool watch. You know, these, the 853s are the uh, time only variations. More common is the 855s, but um, they wear so cool. They're like a 37 millimeters. They've got, you know, kind of like this disco volante styled uh, slanted bezel. They're phenomenal watches. And then on top of that, this one's kind of a, a relatively early one. It's um, from 1957, according to the extract. But these watches were produced, the automatic variants of these were produced in 57. And um, right around 1960, I think, is where the automatic with date function came in. So they, you know, JLC when you look at the alarm complication, they kind of hit the ground running where they introduced the Memovox, the manual wind, the automatic, the automatic with date. Then, you know, they've got the compressor styled cases that are submergible. It's like they really were focused on this as a product line. And this is just the classic automatic, simple time only dial. And then on top of that, it's, it's right at the period where they start to begin introducing these branding symbols and this one having kind of the absence of a JL applied at 12 and unsigned crowns, that for me is like, I like that. Um, I kind of like the less like commercial cues on a, on a watch. So even though I love the applied JL, this one having just lapidated 12-hour markers and at six, it's like, it's just beautiful. Love it. I, I love watches that have an extract. To me, an extract is significantly cooler and far more interesting than having papers on a watch. And so I, I love when watches come with an extract or when at least you have the opportunity to get an extract for a watch. I think it's just so fun. What's your favorite extract from a manufacturer? Because I mean, the new Patek extracts are, I guess, a little bit more, um, you know, they're a little bit more corporate looking. I think that the older ones were a little bit more romantic, but which extracts do you think are the most beautiful? Yeah, I, I love the older uh, Patek extracts. I have one, and I think the newer ones, someone showed me 
a friend of ours showed me one, uh, a newer one the other day. And I was like, is that fake? Like, is that a real extract? I, I didn't, I haven't seen one yet. And I was like, wow, I'm kind of disappointed to see that. I don't think Cartier does extracts. At least I've never seen one. And if they did, I would have to imagine they would be as elegant as their watches are. I love the Longines extracts because, and Omega, because they, they tell you, and I haven't seen a JLC one, so I can't speak on that, but I love how they tell you where it was invoiced to, you know, the city, obviously the date is always fun, but I love when you see like a Longines extract and it's like, this was invoiced to, I think the, their retailer's name was like Ostersetzer or something like that, or I can't remember. can't remember the pronunciation, but in Italy, and this is the date. And I don't know, you just get the whole story and you can look at the watch and be like, I get it. Or that's interesting that this was invoiced to this, you know, place at this time. So I I love those two. And Omega does the same thing. Longines records are just like, they're unmatched. They're incredible. It's so cool. And I love that they also just do it on a very small, you know, compact, kind of a uh, cardboard, not cardboard, but a little small paper. It's, it's smart. It's, it's good, but it's compact and it's not burdensome. You don't have to like fold it over five times. It, it fits wherever you want right. to put it. It looks like a diploma, you know, yeah. like it, I love it. It's so good. Do you have a favorite by the way? You know, I think, I mean, for me, I like, yeah, I don't know if I don't know if I, I I probably would say Longines. I would say Longines. Um, Patek is nice, but Longines is is that extra kind of component of it was sent here, or they'll tell you outright. We don't know where it was sent, or we don't know who the agent was in the United States at this point because our records don't indicate this. You know this detail. I think that Longines goes that little extra step, and then on top of that, providing it for free is just like. You, you have to applaud it. And they're fast. Yeah. Longines is just a remarkable brand. I mean, again, like the books, the collecting, it's 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 fantastic. I wish that for me, I wish that I had the opportunity to have more Longines. I think it's very competitive also. The people who have them are very um, studious individuals. They love the scholarship. And they also love different genres of watches. They love pockets. They love a specific 1930s run of of waterproof, you know, time only watches or, you know, chronographs or, you know, the seventies stuff. It's like a whole world within a world. When you talk to a Longines collector, they, they know exactly what they're interested in and they can tell you everything about their watches. Um, I wish that there was more stuff in the United States. It's kind of one of those things we've luckily we've got Hoyer and, uh, Abercrombie and Fitch to keep us, uh, comfortable at night, but it'd be nice to have some machines in my life. <laughs> Love it. All right. The third watch I chose is a Vacheron Constantin reference 43031. I believe it's a perpetual calendar. And I chose this watch for, for three reasons. One, Vacheron's an extremely um, incredible brand with, with high value and a lot of value to be had by collectors as well. And the other reasons I chose it is, in fact, the value and the price of the watch. And two, I think the dial is incredible and the layout is amazing. These are um, interesting. They are, from what I remember, this is a this is a movement that's based on the 920 JLC, which was used in um, Nautilus, Vacheron uh, Overseas, as well as the um, Royal Oak, and. The calibers were never used by JLC. From my understanding, is that they were actually um, commissioned by um, outside companies, so the licensing was was theirs for them to use. But then it, you add on a perpetual onto it, and it's still ultra thin. Like for me, the watch is is very much about the movement and the dial. I love, you know, I'm a case guy, as as of course. But for me, you look at that dial; it's very beautiful. The movement is very sophisticated as well, and um, it's ultra thin, you know, a lot of the stuff that's comparable, I think comparisons are a 3940, which is maybe twice, three times as much, I would say, if you're looking for a collector's grade one, but this is in platinum, it's got kind of a little bit of substance to it in terms of the heft. I, I love the watch. It's, it's cool. Also the moon face is very nice. You know, again, 
would it be the watch that I would want to wear or, or buy and keep in my collection before a few other watches? Maybe not, but to somebody who really appreciates ultra thin watches, of course, it's like Vacheron is also one of those watches that's they're slept on. And I think that people who love them, it's for good reason. I mean, I don't even, I don't know when this watch was produced, but I have to imagine it was produced sometime between the eighties or early two thousands. And it's like one of those watches that, maintains a good contemporary look you look at it and you're like it could be vintage it could be uh you know neo vintage and it still fits in that realm of like it's it's a good looking watch by today's standards and again just the value when you compare it to other perpetual calendars of that quality and of that grade it's just it's like a no-brainer do you have a vacheron cameron i don't a long time ago i almost bought you know a couple of the vintage you know, probably eighties, just time only white gold, really simple options. But I've always wanted to add one to my collection. I really fell in love with the new 35 millimeter overseas. And, um, I was lucky enough to actually just get offered one at retail, but it was the rose gold version and it's just, the price is still crazy. And so (laughs) that's actually the, the first watch I've ever gotten offered at retail. Um, from an AD, which is funny. They know that they need someone like you on their team. <laughs> I would love modern wise. I would love the, the steel 35 millimeter new overseas. I just think that's such a fun everyday watch for somebody. You can swap it out between all the different bands, which is really interesting. And vintage wise, I absolutely love this, this perpetual. I think it's, it's stunning. Interestingly, on the Vacheron overseas, those um, quick release systems on the straps and bracelets, I want to say that that was originally the technology on those Cartier Roadsters from the early 2000s where they had those kind of like push systems where you could release it and put on a bracelet or a rubber strap or a leather strap. And then it slowly kind of trickled out into um, who had it first. I think it was IWC got it in one of their watches. And then I think it also went into Vacheron. I'm trying to remember what the the IWC might have been though, but it's like it's kind of like it's kind of slowly been allowed to, um, you know, flow through the other Richemont brands. But it's those those quick release systems on them are pretty cool. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And um, you have me here. You have me here uh, championing modern watches. I don't know what's going on. Here, <laughs> love it. Well, on that note, we should wrap it up before I do anything else too crazy to make you rethink your whole collection. We should wrap it up with the collector's gym rundown. You can answer these questions, Charlie, based on any of your collections, books, watches, uh, ephemera. You can answer these questions based on a chair that you love from your dad's collection, however you see fit. Nice. All right. What's the one that got away? There was a 5513 Submariner uh, earlier on this year that I was kind of strategizing with Eric on and, uh, thinking whether I needed to get it, but it was super, super crisp, beautiful case. It had kind of like a ghosted bezel, you know, uh, the, it didn't have any patina. It was very kind of like, you know, white accents on the dial and the loom. And I don't know what it was about it. I loved that watch. A lot of it was the case. I know what it was that I love it, but, um, you know, maybe it'll come back to me one day, but, uh, you know, you can't have them all, so I'm I'm not going to uh, lose sleep over it. What is the what's the one that got away for you though? That's what I want to know. Oh man, um, I would actually say a lot of watches that, like I, I I've said this before, I wish I would have gotten in earlier with a brand like Cartier to do some special order stuff. Not that there's not time now, but I wish I would have done this a long time ago before prices had skyrocketed and before the entry to you know the Barrett entry was a lot higher. I think that that kind of got away, at least for the time being. Um, A watch that got away was there was a great deal on a uh, Patek Aquanaut 5167R. This was like a year or two ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And the prices have just skyrocketed on them. That's just a modern watch that I love. Um, I had a yellow gold Cartier Basculant that was just such a great story of how I acquired it and the prices on them skyrocketed and I let it go uh, to move into other pieces that I still have. So I'm, I'm happy about that, but I do miss that watch a little bit. So I would say those, those probably got away. 
hopefully you're not losing too much sleep over them. Nah, nah. I, it was it was all you know in good taste. So at least for me. All right. How about the on deck circle? I think I know the answer to this based on um, an auction you have going on today. But what's next for you in collecting? Uh, what do you have your eye on? You know, I'm pretty happy right now. I just got a sixteen seven five with pointed crown guards. I love that watch. Um, been wearing that a lot, and I have my tutor and I have a Memovox. You know, hopefully I'll find a way to uh, justify getting another Memovox in the next twelve hours. But we'll see if it if fate uh, works out. You know, I think I'm, I'm pretty happy right now. If if things uh, if things evolve, then maybe I'll be. Uh, Maybe I'll be sitting pretty and uh, have a few other watches, but I think right now I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to get too excited and say that I need another one just yet. How about the unobtainable? So this could be in a private collection that you know. This could be in a museum. This could be a one of one. Uh, just something that is truly unobtainable, even if there was all the money in the world, because it's just locked up. Man. Right off the top of my head, I think I'd like one of those Cartier crystal clocks from the 1920s or something super decadent that JB, uh, you know, John, John, uh, John Pierre Point Morgan would wear or would have in his office. Maybe, uh, maybe a tank aguichet just so I could give it to you. <laughs> I love that. I would love to also get a copy of the JP Morgan watch book. I think. Uh, Arrow has a copy of that and just what a cool thing I've got. I don't know if you've been to the museum of his library in New York. Yeah. The Morgan. It's awesome. Did you get to see the book? No, I didn't. And I, it was because I didn't realize that they could like pull things down for you from the library for you to see. So next time I go, I'm going to have them do that. Yeah. I emailed them and they said that they would, um, they would, uh, if I wanted to book a appointment time, so now I have to make my way up there with you and we'll have to, uh, take a bunch of photos of each page and, and, uh, romanticize over everything in there. He's, he had some pretty crazy stuff. He was a collector of everything. I mean, silverware to chairs, to furniture, to paintings. He was a kind of a big time collector. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Maybe we can take photos and then put it back into print just for yeah. our sake. Let's do a photo report. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> so this is the page one rewrite. So if you could collect anything besides watches and books and ephemera, money, no object, what would it be? Land. <laughs> <For all that. laughs> Smart. You know, I, would, I would have a lot of land and, and probably purpose it some, uh, some philanthropic way. If, I was, if there was money was not an object, that would probably be a smart move from me. <laughs> You're a smart man. The goat. So, who do you look up to in the collecting world? Uh, Eric Wind. Good answer. Eric Wind. He's uh, checked all the boxes in terms of he's done a lot of research. He's he's written. He's he's helped countless people in in collecting. He's got an incredible collection himself. Like he looks at stuff in terms of he's got a good focus and and. And he has good advice a lot of times when it comes to collecting on stuff. You know, some people are very anxious and they say, I need to get this. And he'll kind of sit them down and kind of walk through it with them and tell them, Is he, do you need this? Is this something that's, you know, necessary when you've got this, this, and this, and this? Are you going to wear these things still? Is it smart for you to be buying this? Or, you know, or he'll be supportive of, you know, I think that that's one of the boxes you haven't checked in terms of collecting. I think that, you know, from a, from somebody who mentor wise, Eric is, is one of the guys that I look up to right, uh, right after Cameron Ross. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, he's definitely been very gracious to me, uh, for advice and, uh, all that sort of stuff. So I definitely agree with you there. The hunt or the ownership. You know, I was thinking about that. You sent me this questionnaire and, um, I love the hunt, but I like owning it too. Um, there's something about when you have a nice watch and you kind of, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about it and you get to wear it. Like I was wearing my GMT, my 1675 in the pool the other day. And, um, I just like the the ownership of it. I think that's a really special thing when you get those moments where you look at the watch and you're excited and, um, you don't need other things to fulfill you. It's like, I've got this one watch. I'm happy with it. Um, so that's a special thing. I think the ownership is, is, is big, not to sound too materialistic, but um, it's nice to have a good watch. 
the hunt is, you know, the hunt is something that you, it's fun to lose sleep and think about stuff anxiously and, and be miserable over something that gets away. But, um, I like the acquisition of it. I think it's fun when it lands on your wrist and it's secured and the, the debts are paid and you're, you're good to go. <laughs> you're, you're, you're crying happy tears. What do you like more, the hunt or the, the ownership? I'm with you. It's, it's always a 50, 50 battle. Obviously there's the scenarios that happen often. I think early on with collecting when you're just buying a lot because you think you want it or you think you're interested and then you get it and you're like, eh. So in those instances, the hunt is always more fun than the ownership because those things come and go once you own them. But I'm at a point now in collecting where I'm just trying to be very focused and uh, with purpose in everything that I do and everything that I buy and add to the collection. Um, there's still things that come and go once in a while. and But in, in most scenarios, I would say it's a 50-50. I'm not after currently anything that's super rare that would make the hunt uh, more exciting than the ownership. I think that also plays a factor if there's something super difficult that you're trying to find. Some of the things I want are as easy as sending a text message, right? So the hunt for that is is less fun as the ownership. So I think each, it, it's situational for sure. Yeah, 100%. All right, Charlie, most importantly, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? I would say yes. I think so. <laughs> I would have to agree. <laughs> Love it. Charlie, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, it's always good to chat with you. Uh, it was nice to see you in New York a few weeks ago. And hopefully I'll make my way out to, to Florida so we can get together and look at some stuff that's sitting in, in the office there. Thank you so much, Cameron. It was an honor. You got it, man. Take care. All right. That does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collector's Gene Radio. 